everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at eudaimoniapod. You can also now support the podcast by becoming a patron. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. In this episode, I speak with philosopher Agnes Callard about Sophocles' tragedy, Antigone. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really excited this evening to be joined by Agnes Callard. Agnes is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. She received her BA from the University of Chicago in 1997 and her PhD from Berkeley in 2008. She works in ancient philosophy and ethics, and she has a recent book called Aspiration and tons of interesting articles. And she writes a lot of public philosophy. She has a philosophy column in The Point magazine, which is a great magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Agnes. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really excited that you chose Antigone. So we'll we'll talk about that. Now, Antigone is taught in human being and citizen at the University of Chicago, correct? Uh, I don't know whether it's currently being taught. Um, uh, I believe it wasn't when I taught it. <laughs> I taught it in full, in full perspectives this year, though it wasn't officially one of the books. So are you no longer teaching in human being and citizen? That's right. I'm now teaching in philosophical perspectives. Is anybody in philosophy teaching in human being and citizen? I believe Gabriel is. Okay. Did you ever teach human being and citizen or is this like yes. a myth? Okay. Yeah. I did. And I prefer it. Okay. I, yeah. I, me too. Course. I loved it. I, I yeah, totally I love it loved too. it. I, it was for me, honestly, I mean, this podcast wouldn't exist if I hadn't taught in human being and citizen, for example. Um, it yeah, was pretty it's the best core. Yeah, it was pretty transformative for me, but let's just for the, for our audience sake, um, can you explain what human being and what sort of like what the cores are in Chicago, not in detail, but just what the cores are at Chicago and what human being and citizen is and, and why you prefer it over Phil perspectives? Yeah. Um, so I was recently on a panel discussion about the core in which it emerged that we don't all agree what the core is. Um, and oh, I, I could think... have told you that, yeah. <laughs> but I think, like, let's say just, you know, it's it's a humanities course, uh, a sequence that's required It's for all undergrads. All undergrads have to take some version of it, but there are a bunch of different versions. And two, the two flavors of it are human being and citizen and philosophical perspectives. Those two are actually pretty similar to one another. Um, they, I would say that they are great books courses that don't attempt anything even close to comprehensiveness. They're like just um, some selected greatest hits that work well together. And the, you know, curriculum changes every year a little bit. Um, so um, uh, why do I love HBC? A big part of that is that you teach the Iliad. Um, yep. 
and I love the Iliad. I uh, I started teaching it in philosophy courses <laughs> just because I was in Iliad teaching withdrawal. Um, I HBC does more literature, uh, and yeah. Philper does more. Like we, I, I do more literature in Philper than most other people do, but. Uh, and it's not, Philper is not strictly all philosophy texts, but it's like mostly philosophy texts. And uh, so the the sort of balance between literature and philosophy is just like, it's slightly more tilted towards literature in HBC. Um, but the basic idea is that you, um, you read these like great works of literature and philosophy and you kind of inhabit them and argue about them and try to figure out like, what the point or the meaning of these books is and what how they might help us guide our own lives now and how they might speak to us now and when i took hbc was like a totally transformative experience for me taking that class uh you know in 1993 i was i came to university of chicago all set to be a physics major like physics and math were like the things i was into in high school because they were what i was good at and uh i had sort of come to the conclusion that like if if you wanted to pursue truth, you had to do like science or math. And that like in the humanities, people just made stuff up. Because I would write these papers and teachers would be like, no, this isn't a good paper. And I would never understand what I had done wrong. Like I just found uh, English classes kind of a bit confusing in terms of what was what were the expectations. And uh, and I I got to HBC and it was like, we can act, there's truth here. Who, who <laughs> yeah. taught you HBC? Amy Cass. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was just saying, I was on this panel talking about the core and I was saying like the way that I teach it is basically, I just, I, and I can't help it. I almost sometimes wish that this were not the case, but I just imagine her sitting in the room the mm -hmm. entire time. And even if my students like what I'm saying, I can always hear her voice being like, nope, you're not doing a good enough job getting discussion going. No, you've ignored this important thing. Um, but she was a wonderful teacher and, um, and like, you know, the, she really gave you the feeling that there was something at stake in understanding these books and getting them to speak to you and that it was possible. It was possible to have a conversation with them. Yeah. When you took HBC, um, was the symposium part of it? It's really hard for me to remember because I ended up reading so many of the books that are sometimes taught and sometimes not taught in HBC in other classes, mm -hmm. like with uh, Mrs. Cass later. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, like, I, you know what I mean? I, I like we did. I did. I, I keep thinking the Odyssey was an HBC, but I think it wasn't. But I took it with her like the next quarter. So, yeah, I think it's always kind of been the Iliad. I'm not sure why, but I, I think it's always been the Iliad. Um, and then for a long time, it was like fall quarter was the Iliad and the symposium and then some Sophocles. Right. Um, but Even Genesis, and, that I remember oh, really well. Yeah. Oh, also, yes. Genesis was a, and that really, man, I did not know how to teach that. I mean, part of the trouble for me, so I taught it for a year. I didn't have any exemplars. I was just thrown in there, like just coming out of, you know, an analytic philosophy program and being like, wait, I have to teach Homer. I'm, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, I don't, <laughs> I have no idea how to do this. There aren't arguments. I don't know what's going on. And I thought I was going to hate it. I loved it. But I think, you know, I, w I think maybe I was bad at it, at least in the beginning, for sure. Once it got to texts that I just knew really well, because I, I myself loved them, like Winter Quarter, 
was amazing. You know, it was like Augustine's Confessions and Dante's Inferno. And I think it was Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And I was like, oh, this is my sweet spot. <laughs> like, like, um, and then other parts of it I struggled with, obviously. I, I think I did a terrible job with Genesis, but whatever. Kids will forgive me. I kind of wonder, like, how is HBC doing at Chicago these days? Maybe you don't know if you're not teaching it, but I know that I sort of had this sense, even when I was there, and this was like seven years ago now, that it wasn't as popular as it used to be, that there was a lot of questions about the value of great books in general. Are all those conversations still happening? Um, so I think HBC is a pretty popular core. HBC and Philper, I think, are the two most popular. Um, well, that's good. Yeah. Um, Greek Thought and Lit, I think, is also a great core. Um, I think I'd like to try and teach it sometime. Um, but I mean, the issue for me is just that so many of our majors start in Philper that it's like, for me, a chance to jumpstart my relationship with like my future students and as DUS, like get to know, you know, some of the people that, so for me that the advantage of that outweighs the fact that I like HBC more. Um, but, um, uh, but I, I, I think it's, uh, I, I mean, I think in terms of like, people are always upset about the canon and like the idea that, um, that somehow like we're making some determination of value as opposed to just reflecting the value that's there. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, um, but like, I think all those conversations will keep happening and people will like keep like not liking the word canon, but like, we'll just keep reading the Iliad anyway. So it's okay. Right. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, in terms of the canon wars, which have certainly been going on since you know, I was starting college. Like if you had to give like an elevator pitch in favor of great books, what is it? Oh, I mean, I think I would like, there are a lot of different ways to do great books and I'm not sure I'm in favor of all of them, you know, uh, and not because I'm against any of them, but because I haven't experienced all of them. So like Columbia does great books by like kind of trying to aim for something like coverage Mm -hmm. Right. And there's an insane amount of reading and there's this idea. And then if something is sort of left out that, that and then it's like, oh, OK, so you're saying, you know, if we lived it, that isn't a great book. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. there I can see that like a lot more justification is going to need to go into like um, what is the canon to for that kind of a great books class for the, you know, HBC Philper kind. Like, you know, we're reading like a couple of books a quarter. We're obviously not reading most of the great books. Um and um, I think it's good to be experimental, you know, like we, 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 um, there was this book called Women in Early Modern Philosophy that we assigned uh, for a, like a couple of years. Uh, mm. uh, and that, but we all hated teaching it. And I didn't understand <laughs> the ideas in it. And it didn't seem good. So then we stopped teaching it. But yeah. like, I think it's good to experiment and think about like, Rodney McCannon and think about what else we might want to do, we should be aware that those experiments could fail. Um, so, um, uh, but I think that like the reason, the argument is just like in how good the Iliad is, uh, which, right. you know, uh, it's, it's like how powerful a text Genesis is and how many fundamental moral questions it addresses. And uh, the argument for each book is that particular book. Uh, and uh, so I think it is hard to make the argument in the abstract, like in the abstract, in a way, all books look equal, you know, here's another book, why not read that one? It's like, well, there's no reason apart from what's in it. But what's in yeah. it is always not not there in the conversation. Do you think um, that part of the value of a program like HBC is just that it gives students like a really solid 
intellectual foundation in the sense that these texts are not just great in the sense that you've articulated, which they clearly are, like they're in, in their own right, they're great texts that ask like the perennial questions, of course, but they also are just have an outsized influence. I mean, they're everywhere, right? And so like, if you don't actually, if, if you don't know Genesis, there's just like a lot that's not going to make any sense to you, right? I mean, do you, do you feel the force of those arguments or that doesn't matter to you? I mean, I guess I think like, like Schopenhauer was hugely, hugely influential. Okay. Philosopher who had an outsized influence if any philosopher had. Um, we don't read him a lot nowadays. Um, mm -hmm. And like, we don't care how much he influenced like, you know, Nietzsche and Wittgenstein and like people walk around carrying copies of Schopenhauer. Like he was maybe like the number one influencer philosopher of, you know, after a certain period. Um, and like, do I think like, well, we should all be reading Schopenhauer because he influenced so many people. And I want to be like, maybe I don't actually find that to be such a persuasive reason. I actually think Schopenhauer is interesting. <laughs> and I've, you know, been kind of warming to him as like a, um, someone who articulates a point of view that you cannot get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the reason that I would put forward. I wouldn't put forward his influentialness. So I guess I'm inclined to think that there's a kind of causation correlation thing here where there's like a reason these people were influential. The yeah. reason they were influential is that they had super important questions and they gave you like kind of a framework for thinking about those questions. And so for those same reasons, we should be interested in them. But if there were some people who might've been very influential, but um, you know, did a lot less of that, like, um, okay, like people maybe are gonna get angry at me, but like Cicero, <laughs> like I like, I, I like, I like Cicero's Latin. I like him as a writer, but like, I just don't find that I learn a lot from reading Cicero. I often like, I forget what I just read. Um, <laughs> he was hugely, hugely influential, right? Um, so he was, like, yeah. I would not, but I would not be like, well, he's so influential. We should include him in Philper or HBC. He's not the greatest philosopher. I'll give you that. Yeah, for sure. He's a good read though. His Latin's really hard, really hard stuff. I think I learned Latin by reading Cicero and it nearly killed me. Last question about HBC. I mean, so one thing that was so really kind of transformative for me about teaching HBC is one is that it forced me to do literature and philosophy at the same time, which I wasn't doing. I mean, I was at Pitt. There's nobody there doing that. In fact, I remember um, the first talk I gave at Pitt as a grad student, you know, we, we had these faculty grad student talks and, and so like on Fridays, like either a grad student or a faculty would give a talk and they were terrifying if you were a grad student. But the first talk that I gave was on the guise of the good. And I talked a lot about Milton. And after my, <laughs> and after my talk, Michael Thompson stood up and said, this isn't philosophy, this is literary criticism. <laughs> and I wanted to die. <laughs> like it was horrible. Cause I was like, oh, it's not even philosophy. Um, and then, so this moment, this like devastating moment, in which, you know, my, my paper was rendered sub philosophical because too much <laughs> Milton, you know, I just thought, all right, well, this love that I have for literature and I find it so important, you know, like I'll, sh I'll table that because <laughs> that really didn't go over well. And so I just stopped. And then, you know, I'm teaching HPC and I'm like, I guess I have to indulge that side of me again. And ever since I've been trying to think about the intersection between literature and philosophy. And, and I've actually come to, I mean, personally, I've come to think that 
literature is really important to moral philosophy, but I'm wondering what you think about um, what the value is of teaching literature and philosophy together and whether like, yeah, what's your sense of that? Yeah, so I do a lot of it. Like I would say uh, most of my courses actually have um, involved some literature. Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm teaching a class on courage and, you know, we're reading like the Lakeys, but we also read the Iliad. I taught a class on death and the Phaedo. We read um, the Macropolis case, um, but mm -hmm. we read the, the Williams essay, but we also read the play. Mm -hmm. um, I taught a class on self-creation. We read Ferrante. We read Joyce's portrait. Um, so yeah, I, I do a lot of this. Um, so why? Yeah. So I think um, a bunch of reasons. Um, one of them is that um, uh, I think of literature as like, so a thing that plays a big role in philosophy is thought experiments. Yeah. Right? Uh, and like well, analytic philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Analytic philosophy. But I actually think thought experiments are important to philosophy. Like yeah. I think they have a lot of philosophical value. Yeah. But a thought experiment, basically what that is, is like bad literature. Like, <laughs> That is, yeah. it's like, it's like a little scenario that's given and it's written by someone who doesn't know how to tell a story. Mm -hmm. And so literature is, you could think of it as like really good thought experiments. So I feel like thought experiments are valuable. We should go to the, like the experts who could actually construct them. And, you know, it can be a little hard. You have to find the, the thing that's going to fit the thing you want to talk about. And it's often not a perfect fit, right? The nice thing about a thought experiment is that the author constructs it to be a perfect fit. But, um, so, so that's one role that literature plays is just like, here's, an, here's, the, here's the thing we're talking about theoretically actually playing out. Here's another role I think that's super important. Um, in philosophy, I think that we try to talk about like universal things. Like we try to talk about like the you know, universal human condition, um, um, but we have to kind of go on the basis of our intuition and of how things seem to us. And it can be really hard to sort of abstract from yourself. And it can be the case that you think you're doing it when you're not doing it. Um, and there is like a whole lot of human heterogeneity out there that I think philosophers are a group of people who they're not good at acknowledging that and seeing it. That people are really different from one another. They're different in how they think. They're different in how they react. Um, but novelists really get that. Uh, and so one thing that, you know, novels allow us to do is to be just faced with that human heterogeneity and to be thinking, well, if I'm theorizing, I have to theorize for Antigone, too, and for Creon, too, and for Ismene, too. My theories have to work for all these different sorts of people who are different in pretty important ways. Um, so um, that would be um, that would be like reason number two. Maybe I'll give one more reason. Um, so I think that. Um, you know, one um, one of the big things, maybe the biggest thing that we're doing in philosophy is trying to like answer questions about the meaning of life and like, how should we live and what kinds of people do we wanna be? Um, but um, uh, it's really hard often to do that with yourself because it's like, you're pretty invested in thinking that your life is going okay and that like, you, you kind of have a handle on things. Like if Socrates is right, you have no handle on anything and your life is not going okay, right? And so there's this problem, which is that we're trying to engage in this kind of activity. To do it freely, you would have to really liberate yourself from your own life and be like, not assume that you have like the answers. Right. And, and uh, like, 
but like, it's really hard to do that, but you can kind of do it by inhabiting other people. I think like, it's almost like another version of the thought experiment idea. It's like, we're kind of experimenting on people when we're, when we're, when we're talking about the Antigone and like, who's right and who's wrong. And like, what's the meaning of life? We're like, we're like experimenting on human beings which would not be okay, except that they're fictional human beings. And so we can kind of, um, we can kind of unleash our like, um, you know, this kind of, this kind of unmoored ethical thinking, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. let's test this on these, these humans over here. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we separate it from ourselves and we attach it to these beings who we're allowed to do this to because they're not real. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's like, it gives us like an arena for doing ethics. Um, that is, um, you know, where some of the problems of doing it in our own lives or on other real people are avoided. Right. That's good. I like that. Well, let me ask about tragedy in particular, mm. since you chose a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there was always like some kind of uh, tragedy taught in HBC, but but certainly in, in most great books programs, you know, you're you're going to be looking at ancient Greek tragedy or, or maybe Shakespearean tragedy. Actually, when I taught HBC, there were two tragedies. There was Antigone and King Lear. So that was pretty cool. And those, yes. uh, those two actually remind me of one another. I mean, it was surely on Very purpose much. that they were put together. What's the value for moral philosophers in reading tragedies in particular? do you think? Um, so I think that um, one question that I would like to like get clear on is um, is it so here's something that could be, a, it could be something that's just true of me or it could be more true in general. And I put a Twitter poll up once about it, um, which is like, are there specific Im negative emotions that um, literature can address and others that it cannot, or can it address, like, can it, can it kind of evoke any negative emotion in us? Um, and my feeling is like, tragedy is like one loose way of thinking about tragedy is just like, it's a really sad story, right? So tragedies evoke sadness, a feeling of sadness. Um, and there's a lot more to be said about tragedy, but like, there's no happy tragedies, right? <laughs> they're, they're all sad. Um, yeah, they end poorly. Right. Um, and, um, um, so, so, so if you think of tragedy is to sadness as what is to anger, right? What is the genre or whatever that is like the anger genre of literature? And I think there is no genre that to me, that's very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, now here's the part where I don't know whether it's personal. Like I don't ever feel angry when I read literature or poetry, except in weird, weird, funny cases that would, that sort of prove the point. Um, and, uh, and so one thing here is like, why tragedy? Like, well, maybe sadness is the emotion that literature is best poised to evoke in us. And if we want some kind of like emotions on the table, then tragedy has a kind of, um, it's like our best, our best bet. So, but I don't know if, I don't know if that thing about anger is true. And when I ask other people, so, like a lot of people agree with me and are like, yeah, only sadness, no anger. But then like, there's some small group of people who are like, no, I do feel like, I don't know, angry at Creon or something. To me, that's like absurd. The idea of feeling angry at Creon, like he didn't do anything to you. Um, but you could say that same thing about the sadness, right? These people aren't real. Um, but I have that, like, this isn't real reaction with respect to anger, not with respect to sadness, which I find very interesting. I can definitely feel anger 
uh, in reading literature. For me, I'm often angry at, at men <laughs> in literature who like do something terrible to a woman. And I'm just like, what's wrong with you? I hate you. I've just finished um, Christopher Beja's latest novel, which I really loved. And I, I, I absolutely hated the central character. I, I just detested him and was constantly angry whenever he pretty much said anything. Uh, so so okay. I think I think you can definitely like hate people in literature. And I think okay. I think people that you like hate, you know, kind of make you a little angry, right? So I don't have that like I don't <laughs> respond at all. Like I like um that way. But I also think like um you know there's even like I, I guess I still want to push this, this asymmetry in some way where I want to say um, there's a sense in which you just kind of have to feel sad when Antigone is like going to her death and she's like shaking. Like she, you can see her sense of confidence is, is, uh, is shaken or with Creon at the end. Um, um, and whereas like, you know, suppose you hate the men in Ferrante or something. Um, like, I get that. I would get mm -hmm. hating all the men in Ferrante, but I don't hate them. And I don't think that somehow... I sort of loved, hated Nino, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, for me, like, they're all so flat that I don't, almost don't see them as people. Like, she does this weird thing where, like... You don't know enough people. Italian men. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe you know Italian men are just they like... They felt very familiar to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I feel like when... I get when people hate some character, but I don't feel like, oh, you're missing something if you're not hating them. Like, mm -hmm. so that's like a reaction you can have or not. Whereas like with sadness, there are certain things where it's like, you're supposed to feel sad here. You, there's something up with you if you don't. Mm -hmm. Why Antigone? Why did you choose Antigone? I always let people choose their own thing. The Antigone is like a kind of a study of like arguments. Mm -hmm. Like what's so, so interesting. And it's a little bit true of like Oedipus too, that, you know, the events happen off stage, right? This is true of a lot of group tragedy. Mm -hmm. And what's on stage is just people arguing with each other, right? Well, actually two things, people arguing with each other and people getting information from one another. That's right. right? So, and what's interesting is the, the way that those activities can flip back and forth. Like the play opens with Antigone informing Ismene of something, right? She's like, you don't know about this edict. Do you know? Okay, let me tell you, right? So there's this, it's the information moment. But then it emerges that actually it was a test. She's like, I wanted to see how you're going to react, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, so there the information then is subordinated into this question of whose side are you on and argument and like allegiance, right? So the, the, the dialogue, <laughs> the, 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 the whole play is like these conversations that alternate between information sharing and then like a kind of adversarial relationship. Right. And I think that I'm really interested in that and in the play as a study in communication. And mm -hmm. in why is it, I think Sophocles is really interesting. Like why does communication take these two forms, this kind of collaborative form, right? Where people are sharing information and then this adversarial form. And with respect to the adversarial form, there is this, to me, this is what's tragic about Antigone is there's this constant quest for like, the thing that rises above the dispute, like the universal position, right? So like Hymon will be like, look, dad, like just listen to good judgment here. Like the important thing, I, I'm on your side. We're all in what we're a team, you know? Yeah. And there's just, there's a one truth that joins us together or Creon will be like, 
look, somebody's got a rule and like, like somebody's like got to set the, you know, set the terms. Otherwise, like we're all in at, at odds with each other or Antigone be like, look, the gods, right. Yeah. Have their, you know, and so there's this reaching for this overarching perspective um, by all the characters. And it's like this scramble. It's this weird sort of scramble for unity that is like so tragic and human to me um, uh, that all the characters are doing that. They're all in some way doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um and yet they can't come to see eye to eye. Just so that our listeners know, we will eventually uh, explain who these people are and like, what actually <laughs> happens in this story. But just to follow up before we do that, like in some sense, you know, people are trying to prove that their position is correct, right? Like you have two very incompatible positions about what the right thing to do is. Really, it's about what's pious. Everybody has... And, and what's interesting to me about it is everybody's a little bit right, actually. Like, nobody's obviously completely wrong in this play. So everybody has kind of like a legitimate point to a certain extent. Um, so is the thing that they're all trying to converge on, like, the actual truth about what's pious? I think that, um, so I, I think that, like, they are interested in proving that they're right. Yeah. Only because they are um, like, in some sense, um, um, trying to have a cooperative conversation and they can see no other way of doing it than via their principle of uh, agreement, which is their own view, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in a way, even more than getting at the truth about what's pious, I actually, don't think that that's what they're after. I think, I mean, that that is, that might be what they're after in life or something, but in the conversations, Mm -hmm. I think that they are in some sense, um, not all equally, but many of them are after kind of agreement, right? But they don't see their way to agreeing on what the other guy thinks, right? Because the other guy's wrong. We can't agree on that. Mm -hmm. So we have to agree on what I think, but not because I aggressively want to you know, assert my power and dominance by forcing you to believe what I believe. It's just, I can't see a way of coordinating on your point because your point's wrong. So our only hope for coordination is on my point. Now, I said almost everyone. I feel like Antigone is the character who is least cooperative in this play. Um, And she actually kind of just thinks like from the outset, there is no way we're going to see eye to eye. She sort of thinks that about Ismaini. She's she's quick to jump to that view about Ismaini. She's quick to jump to the view about... um, Creon, we don't see her talking to Hymon, which is so interesting to me because that's like the one where it worked. Like she got him on her side and we, he, we're we not shown how that happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Hymon is her fiance. Um, so, um, um, and she says things like, look, you've got your view, I've got mine, right? So she, she it's almost like she sees it as like a fait accompli that um, there's not gonna be any convergence here. Um, but everyone else is really working towards convergence. Um, and like, I think that they all sincerely want to agree. It's not just that they want the truth. They want to agree with one another and they are struggling to do that. They're struggling to share a point of view. I want to come back to what exactly it is that you think they're trying to converge upon, but just for the sake of our listeners, um, let's just like kind of really quickly (laughs) go over what the hell is happening in this play. It's, it's actually pretty straightforward um and it doesn't have that many characters but i'll just let you go ahead and explain what's going on okay so um there's been a civil war 
um, between uh, Ateocles and Polynices. Ateocles and Polynices are the children of Oedipus. And if you remember, Oedipus had children with his mother, um, Jocasta, right? So these are the mm -hmm. two children. Oedipus uh, is now dead, right? And um, Ateocles and Polynices had decided to take turns ruling, but um, at some point, like Ateocles, it didn't work out. And Ateocles yeah. I think, didn't let Polynices take his turn, something we don't know the exact details, but then Polynices comes with like an army. All this is before the play uh, mm -hmm. and attacks the city, um, but the attack is warded off and, uh, but both brothers die. And Creon, who's the brother of Jocasta, the wife slash mother of Oedipus, um, is now ruling um, because he's like the next of kin. So he's like um, their uncle. He's their uncle, yes. He's, yeah. he's Antigone's uncle and Ateocles and Polynices and Ismene. Yeah, so Ateocles, right. Polynices, Ismene, uh, and Antigone are the children of Oedipus. Okay, right. so now Creon is like kind of his first act as king is to declare that uh, Ateocles is the hero of the battle and Polynices is the villain. Um, and so Polynices is not going to get buried. Right. He's um, like going to be exposed and he's just going to be exposed and left to be eaten by animals. Yeah. Yeah. And so the play starts at that point um, with Antigone going to Ismene saying, I'm going to bury Polynices because he's my brother and I owe that to him. Do you want to join me? Um, Ismene's like, you're nuts. There's no way you're going to be able to go through this. This is impossible. Uh, and basically, um, but she does it anyway. And uh, uh, the second time she does it, she's caught by Creon. And Creon's like, do you admit you did this? She's like, Antigone is totally unrepentant. Yeah, I did it. Like, it was the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, uh, Creon's like, okay, well, then you're going to die. Because that was what I said would happen to the person who did this. And uh, some people try to intervene on behalf of Antigone, namely uh, Antigone's fiance, Hymon, who is also Creon's son. Uh, Everybody's related in this play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the chorus, um, even Tiresias, the blind seer, um, is like, Creon, you should reconsider. Creon's like, no, I made a rule and she broke it. And like, you know, there needs to be order in this city. And we need to draw a distinction between the bad guy and the good guy. Right. Um, and so he, uh, you know, entombs Antigone like in a rock in a, in her in a in a tomb. Uh, but and and Tiresias finally does convince Creon that he, this was maybe not a good plan. So they actually bury or burn, you know, do ritual stuff for uh, Polynices, and then they go to liberate uh, Antigone. But she has already hung herself, and in the tomb is Hymon. Creon's son, who then commits suicide in front of him. Yeah, he uh, kind of like falls on his sword. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. He he stabs himself. Um, and um, uh, and when Creon's wife, what is her name? Eurydice. She goes off too. And so then yeah. at the end of the play, Creon's like, "Woe is me! I made a bad decision." Uh, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it's him. It, it, really, at the end, it's like Creon's the only one left. Right. Um, the, what, the weirdest thing about this play to me is that it's called Antigone, because mm -hmm. it's not about Antigone. It's about Creon. Like, That's it's true. It's the tragedy of Creon. That's um, true. Uh, and I've asked myself, like, why, is he, why did he call it Antigone? And I think the answer, the answer I've come up with to why did he call it Antigone is Antigone is such a weirdo. She's the weirdest person. She's one of the weirdest people in all of Greek tragedy. She's just, she's kind of obsessed with her own death. Uh, 
And she is independent in this way that is really shocking to everyone. And I think Sophocles was just really struck by her. And he's like, I'm going to name the play after her. Cause she's like, like, like Creon just sounds so much like Oedipus does one, you know, like he sounds like every king. Um, yeah. Where he's like, we need order and we need justice. And, yeah. you know, um, but Antigone does not sound like anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense in which Creon's sort of predictable and, and not, I mean, his position is not that interesting at the end of the day. One thing about Creon is that he's, embodying a, a very traditional, you know, kind of masculine, just a very traditional masculinity. It's sort of like what you would expect. But then Antigone, it's like, she is not being a proper woman. And that's part of the whole drama, right? Is that like one thing that really seems to antagonize Creon is the thought that he might have to like give ground to a woman or like admit you know, that this incredibly obstinate, disobedient woman, you know, what, like she's correct? I don't want to do that. Isn't that when he really gets mad at his son? When it, when it sort of seems like he's giving in to a woman? Yeah. So that's what he says. He's like, to, to his son, the whole thing is about like, you're going to be henpecked if you like yeah. let this woman like <laughs> drag you around. That is true. Though interestingly, I think Creon is more angry at the wrongdoer before he thinks that it's Antigone. So he has this plan as to what he's going to do with the wrongdoer, right? Before he knows who it is. And it's yeah. like, it's not enough to have them killed. I'm going to have them tortured. I'm going to do this. And then when it turns out it's Antigone, he's like, I'll just kill her. I won't do the other stuff to her. Yeah. So well, that's his that's yeah. So, but that's a suggestion that like, actually it's being a woman made him temper his response in some way. Um, but I think like, I do think that it's a shock to him. Like he, what, one thing he says before he finds out who it is, is who of men would dare to do this? And in the word there in Greek is not um, anthropoi, like human beings, it's androne, men, like yeah. specifically male, right? So he's like, which man would do this? And he's not even imagining the possibility that a woman could do it, right? Um, so, uh, um, yeah, there, there is, and like in the the, the famous, you know, um, um, uh, many are the wonders, but none is more wonderful than man. There, it's like human beings, right? Um, and so Antigone represents this possibility of um, a kind of there's something kind of marvelous about her and kind of terrifying about her. Um, and she's like something unanticipated, you know, she's like a possibility he didn't anticipate. Well, what passage do you have in mind there? Oh, there I was, uh, you mean with the, with the many of the wonders? That's mm -hmm. the famous, um, it's line around 3, uh, 34. Okay. Um, so, and this is probably the most famous thing in the antiquity. Actually, mm -hmm. it's definitely the most famous thing in the Antigone, right? Mm -hmm. Many are the wonders, but none more wonderful than man. But man there is human beings mm -hmm. right? um, versus, I mean, I can find you the other line where Creon's like, who did that? Which of men did this? And there it's men in the sense of male, mm -hmm. only um, non-female. Um, so, um, so there's this wonderful discussion of like the resourcefulness and the um, trickiness of human beings. Um, um, but, you know, like, just as a, like, illustration of, like, what a weirdo Antigone is, I think, like, she, there's this great part where um, the guard, the watchman who found her, 
burying the body. So this is like around line 420. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's describing, find, like coming upon her. And uh, he describes her seeing Polynices's uncovered body mm -hmm. as like a bird who sees her nest empty and then uh, the nestlings all gone, right? So Antigone is to her dead brother as other women are to their own children, right? Mm -hmm. So she, and her name Antigone means against generation. She's like a backward looking person. Like she, she feels she's already dead. She's obsessed with death. She feels she's living dead. She doesn't look forward to her life with her husband and with future children the way women are supposed to. She looks backward. Um, so that is like, that is just weird. You know, I feel like if I were modernizing this, like I would dress her like a goth or something. <laughs> oh, well, so I guess, I guess I want to press you on that because to me, Antigone, I feel like she's very determined in the sense that she's faced with a terrible situation where all her options are, are bad, but it's very clear to her what she has to do. So in some sense, she doesn't really have a choice because she thinks she's bound to the laws of heaven or, you know, the laws of the gods that govern the proper burial rites for her, for her deceased family members. That burden falls to her specifically because, you know, like her parents are dead and there's nobody else. Um, well, I guess her younger sister, but her younger sister is not going to do it. So she feels like she has to do this. She knows that in doing it, she's going to be, she's going to be going against the king, who's also her uncle. So like, there's actually no way for her to fully embody the virtue of piety, right? Because piety is like the virtue that helps you um, relate correctly to like the sources of life. So like your family, yeah, but also your country um, and the gods generally. Um, and, but she, she, she kind of like can't really fully do it because she's in this situation where no matter what she does, in some sense, it's going to be an outrage, but she's very convinced that she has to she can't let her brother be dishonored, right? Like it would, it would be outrageous, right? She just can't do it. And isn't like all the obsession with death and stuff just kind of like fall out of that because she knows that, like in some sense, isn't she sort of convinced from the beginning that she's like a martyr? I mean, that- Yeah, martyrs are kind of obsessed with death. <laughs> I mean- but Yeah, because um, they know they're gonna die. Yeah, right. but like that's a weird thing to be, right? Like, so, so, like, I think you're right. I think you made a really good point about piety that, like, there are all these different sources of piety, and you know, the rules of piety govern how we treat the king as well as how we treat our family members, how we treat, um, and so she's like picking out a subset, right? Which is like the dead, piety towards the dead. Yeah, and she's deciding that trumps everything. And part, I think you're right. Part of what she's deciding that is like, look, she's in this impossible situation, she can't. Um, go to all the sources of piety. But what's distinctive about her and really differentiates her from Creon is exactly the thing you said, which is that she is sure from the beginning. And it's not even that she's sure she's right. She has committed herself, right? She has decided what she's going to do. She's just not amenable to anyone saying anything to her. 
and she's like taking everything into her own hands. And as she's going to her death, she says like something like, look, the suffering that I'm doing now, if I turn out to have been wrong, then it's going to be justified. But if I turn out to have been right, then I hope my enemies suffer in this way, which is an astonishing speech because she's saying, I don't know if I'm right. I've chosen this course and I'm not sure it's the right one. I'm not sure the gods actually agree with me, right? But that's all I have is my own judgment. So she has this incredible independence, very different from Creon, who really does let himself get persuaded, right? right. And that I feel like the place where that really shows up, her independence of mind, her almost pathological independence of mind, is at the is in her taking her own life, right? So she gets entombed, right? But it she it has to be by her own hand that she dies, right? And that's not out of piety. That's not out of respect for her brother, right? Yeah. No, that's that is yes. <laughs> um, that is Antigone saying, "I make the decisions here." And so, and, and, and her, her only way of making all the decisions is to make the decisions in the direction of death. Cause that's the only direction she can kind of choose. Um, uh, so I think that, you know, you're It's not just a pure obsession with death. It's that somehow going in the direction of death allows her this kind of independence that would otherwise be impossible for her. Yeah. I mean, I've never really totally understood why she killed herself. It's sort of like the central mystery to me. I mean, in in one sense, it's not mysterious at all because it's a tragedy. And of course, it's very necessary for like how, how things turn out. But in another sense, it's like it is impious. It's not it's sort of like not in keeping with the original posture of, you know, wanting to be right with the gods. It's underdetermined. Like, did she just did she just not want to starve to death? I mean, like, did that seem worse? Um Wait, well, actually, it does seem like it would be worse, right, to starve to death um, in a cave by yourself than to just. She wasn't by yourself. herself. Well, that's there. true. Yeah, she wasn't by herself, and that's like another sort of mystery. Like, like what's he doing in there? Is he goading her on? Like, um, I don't know. What do you make of her suicide? I think it's that, um, like, above all else, Antigone kind of is living her own life um, under her own power. And Ismene says to her, like, you know, you, you're in love with the impossible or you, you try to do the impossible and that's impious, basically. Um, oh, I'll find that it's like, it's in the very beginning. It's just such a good line and I'm not quoting it correctly. Um, uh, she says, oh yeah, you chase after what's impossible, but in Greek, it's Iran. You love, like you lust for the impossible is what it says, mm-hmm. right? As uh, Mani says to Antigone. Um, and, um, you know, somehow it's in, the, it's in that space of the impossible that Antigone like finds her own agency, right? And she's not gonna let herself be put to death. Like that's Creon's action, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, she's sort of, it's sort of her embracing her fate. Like, she's like, yeah, I did this and I did it to myself. And I know that's what I'm doing, you know? And um, uh, so it makes a lot of sense to me, actually, that she commits suicide. What are we supposed to make of that? The fact that she is so determined to control her own fate. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's why I feel like the man, many are the wonders, but none is more wonderful than man's speech is really about Antigone. That um, there is this very 
like the human beings are amazing because they can do stuff and they can do more stuff than other animals can do. That's what that speech sort of says at the beginning part, which is to say they can capture the birds that are high above and they can capture the fish in the ocean. They can, they can leave their own sort of habitat, right? Um, and they do that using, and there's this word that shows up in Greek over and over again, mechane, which is like a contrivance. It, it's where we get the word machine in English, mm -hmm. right? So human beings come up with like clever ways of doing things or something. That's what a mechane is. Mm -hmm. um, but like in this line with this mania, you chase after what's impossible. The word is a mechanon, stuff that where there's no mechane for it. Um, and in the in the man, many are the wonders, right? Um, uh, the the thing the, the thing that's said to be the limit of human power is um, plagues that are where there's no mechane for it, right? And like reading this with my students, you know, during coronavirus is like, like that this the, the idea that a plague in in a in confronting a plague when the city has a plague on it, there's just this sense of helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that, you know, that there's this sense of like human beings can do all this amazing stuff, but then in the face of death, they have a kind of helplessness, but like Antigone is not even going to be helpless there. She's just not going to be helpless at all. And so she is like this kind of, um, shining resplendent, but also terrifying human figure. Uh, and I think in a way it's like, not even that important that she's a woman. <laughs> like, it's like, really? it, like. Like it's important in that it 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 sort of allows that to be highlighted in certain ways, but like it's really her as an anthropos, as a human being, that's being put forward there as like, like equal parts wonderful and terrifying. This word Danos, like many are the wonders, right? It's a word that means both wonderful and terrifying. It's the word that that shows up in the NE when when Aristotle talks about cleverness. That's mm -hmm. Danotes. It's from the same. Right. So yeah. Um, so I think she's she's Danos. She's like terrifying and wonderful and amazing. And mm -hmm. it's because like her commitment to her human agency is sort of infinite. And and what it looks like when your commitment is infinite is that you kind of fight against death or you you kind of engage with death in a certain way. I have to think about that. I mean, I think um, it's, it's not that I disagree with anything that you just said. I'm a little bit stuck on it not being important that she's a woman. I mean... Somehow I feel like it is very striking that, you know, this very strident, you know, powerful, really the, the one who, in a certain sense, wins the day. I mean, yeah, she kills herself and yeah, everything is terrible at the end. But, you know, Creon is coming back to concede. He doesn't yeah. get there in time. Um, yeah. But he's but he's coming back to concede and to uh, make amends. I've always found it really powerful and interesting that you know it, it was someone who, in some sense, is powerless at least politically. It is an outrage to Creon. I mean, I do think that's somehow part of what he's outraged about is that this woman is causing trouble between him and his son, causing trouble in the kingdom making a stink, you know, about the sacred rites and kind of ruining the beginning of, of his reign. But to me, it was just like really striking. But let's come back to this idea of it being about moral disagreement and about everybody trying to converge on something. There's a lot of arguing, right, in this. Uh, there's a lot of arguing about what the right thing to do is, right? And, and like you said, Creon... At some points, he's like 
you know, very firm, like, no, it's just absolutely the way. And then other times he's like, I don't know, am I the bad guy? Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe I'm the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, I mean, he, it's like an open question for him at points, whether he's like really doing the right thing. Um, but at each point when people are trying to like press their case, right, there's, there's Hyman, there's Antigone, there's Creon, there's, in a slightly different way, Tiresias, because he's like, you know, seeing into the future and being like, hey, it's not good. <laughs> but, but what is it exactly that they're trying to converge upon? So you don't think it's the truth about piety, but then yeah. w what is it really? Um, so I think it's something like what we ought, um, what we ought to do or how we ought to interact. Like, it, it's very abstract. Like, so, um, you know, uh, it, Creon has this speech early on, uh, it's around line 175, where he sort of talks about, like, the role of a ruler. And he's like, what is as a, 175? 175, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and he's like, you don't, eat, you don't know a man until he becomes the ruler. Then you find who the true man is. And it's like, oh, Creon, you're not going to want to have said that. Um, um, and, um, um, he, he's saying like a ruler has to be a good person. Like they have to be honest. They have to say when something unjust is happening. Um, they have to, um, you know, kind of put the city above everything else. Um, uh, and that's the kind of ruler I'm going to be. Right. And he's like sort of committing to being a good person. And I think that's the only thing Creon cares about. Like, I, I think he's being totally sincere there. He's like, I just want to be a good person. So when he's arguing with Antigone and with Hymone, he's like, what you're asking me to do is be a bad person. And I can't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so I think that they're like each of them trying to converge. They're trying to like come to an agreement with the constraint that like, I can't do what's wrong. Like, I can't, like, that's not, they're not, like, that's not them being, like, stubborn or something or, like, la lack of epistemic humility or something. It's, like, you know, Creon is, cannot give up on his concern with doing what is right. And he thinks that we have to make, politically, we have to make the distinction between, you know, Polynices and Ateocles so that the city can understand itself as Ateocles' city and not understand itself as, like, a city that in some way still bears the scars of civil war, mm -hmm. right? And that's what he thinks is like morally the right thing to do for the city. And so it's like coming out of that, he's like, how can I talk to Antigone? How can I talk to Hymone? Um, and what he hears them doing is saying like, um, give up on what's morally important. Um, and that's exactly what Antigone hears Creon is saying. And so I think that in a sense, they're all they're trying to do is converge in a pure sense, like just cooperate, almost like imagine like a prisoner's dilemma or something, right? Where people are just, they just want to find a way to cooperate so that like nobody, not everybody gets killed, right? You could think of Antigone as like a prisoner, a failed prisoner's dilemma case where like they all do the thing that gets everybody killed, right? And I think that that's sort of, that, that's sort of right as a way of thinking about it. Like I asked an economist recently, how do economists think about tragedy? Like you, you economists are always saying you can give an analysis of everything. Well, how do you give an analysis of tragedy? And he was like, you know, there's really no good rational choice analysis of tragedy. Uh, Imagine and, that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet I think that there is a good philosophical account of tragedy, right? Which is 
Um, like we philosophers, we have to talk about everything. We can't, we, we can't even leave out tragedy. Like we are the truly universal discipline. Um, and, you know, it's that like they're trying to coordinate. It's a situation in which people are trying to coordinate with one another, but they cannot coordinate. And they're totally sincere and they're all committed to the moral good. Um, but the coordination is impossible and they end up with the worst option for everyone. Yeah. So, well, I have two questions. The first is, do you think Sophocles is taking a side here? You mean between Antigone and Creon? Yeah. No. Why? Why do you say I that? Know that re- like, I know that readers um, will tend to feel like he's taking Antigone's side. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important, like, sort of to try a little bit to resist the tendency to read the text from a feminist angle if what we want to understand is Sophocles' intentions, right? Um, well, yeah, it's Sophocles is not a feminist. Right. And, and like, this figure of the sort of troublesome woman who has a lot of power, like, you know, it's not just Antigone, right? I mean, like, there's Clytemnestra, there's Medea. Um, so... Um, you know, she like that figure is not very common in, as far as we know, ancient Greece, but she's kind of common in Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so clearly, um, you know, uh, uh, she's a way to express some important thought. Um, so I, I guess my thought is like, look, Antigone has virtues. And I think that Sophocles means us to see those virtues. Um, but I think he also means us to see sort of that the that the way those virtues are getting expressed and that the that her drivenness and her her kind of commitment to her own agency is just as terrifying as it is wonderful. And Creon, right, I think that his like sincere and devoted kind of um like commitment to being a good leader is sort of just as like kind of respectable as it is sort of stodgy mm. and yeah, so i think, I I think they're both flawed i think it would be a superficial reading to be like oh well everything was terrible at the end for creon because like you know antigone was the was the good guy and he was the bad guy i don't that just doesn't seem to fit the text because there are all kinds of cases where you're like with antigone you're like well, even if your position is correct, like, why are you being crazy about it? You know, like, like the way she treats her sister, <laughs> sort of, um, not really great. The way, I mean, she seems, um, you know, the fact that she kills herself. Um, I mean, there are, there are all kinds of things where you're like, well, it doesn't look awesome. At the end, it's like, there's just Creon left and he's devastated and just like no chance of a good life for him anymore. He's overcome with grief, but it's, and, and, and look, you can you can point to Creon and be like, okay, well, you know, obviously you 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 have your faults, and maybe you could have done this or that differently. But I don't think there's like any one single ch- chess move in this uh, where you can point to that and be like, oh, well, that you know that was the moment, or you know, this is the single fault or like the the big tragic fault or something. I yeah, I don't. Th- I don't- I, I sort of, I mean, I think, okay, they're flawed in the sense all human beings are flawed, but not in a more profound sense than that. That is, I don't think, like, I don't think Sophocles means us to take Antigone and then imagine if she was a little more reasonable and she didn't kill herself and, like, that would have been the good Antigone. 
Like there mm-hmm. isn't some Antigone star that we're supposed to be like hypothesize. Like that's not Antigone. Everything right. about what's good about Antigone is connected to what's bad about Antigone. That's right. the tragedy, right? Um, right? So it's not that she has this tragic flaw, but then she's also like independent minded. Her independent mindedness is the thing that leads disaster. And the same thing with Creon, right? What's good about him and what's bad about him are intimately connected. And that's sort of what I mean by like Sophocles really gets human beings. Like if a philosopher had written this story, the philosopher would have written it with like the Antigone star, like, oh, it's too bad she had this like little flaw because we could fix her up and then she'd be perfect. She'd be like the ideal human, right? Um, uh, So that's like what's kind of um, brilliant about Sophocles is that he makes us not able to imagine Antigone star. Yeah, I'm, so I want to talk just a little bit about the the end. I, I know that we have slightly different translations, but the okay. last the last lines go to the chorus. This is thirteen fifty. Of happiness, far the greatest part is wisdom and reverence for the gods. Proud words of the arrogant man in the end meet punishment. Great as his pride was great, till at last he is schooled in wisdom. There's this connection at the end, which, again, it reminds me so much of King Lear. It's, like, really mind-blowing to me. Um, but there's this connection in the end about, like, all this suffering, in some sense, is um, what comes of lack of wisdom. And I'm w- wondering what you – I mean, there are lots of ways to read that. I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you read it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is not my favorite part of the play. Like, I find that quite often these sort of play endings are like, I don't know, it's almost like cliches. Like, <laughs> like it's like Sophocles had to pull it together, um, you know, into like the moral of the story. And it's so much flatter than the actual moral of the story. And the same thing is true for like the way Oedipus ends, like, so now you learn, mortals, that you should not be boastful, or you know, and uh, so, so like, like I, like, like I know this is the ending, right? But like, you know, for me, like Creon, like the ending, the previous bit, right, where Creon is like, um, you know, um, de- describing himself as the killer of his own child, and say like, please take this man away, me, right? But the third person, like, and that I, you know, this man killed his own child, his own wife, what a miserable wretch I am, but I'll never be able to see them again. Everything I touch turns against me. Like, you know, I kind of wish he'd ended it there. <laughs> um, you know, like, so, I mean, that is this kind of pietism of like, be wise. And you know, like, it's not like that wasn't what all the characters were trying to do the whole time. They were trying to be wise and respect the gods. And that's what Oedipus was trying to do, right? And it's like- But they couldn't, but they couldn't, right? They right, couldn't exactly. manage it. Right. And, like that's what, that's what this is a lie, this ending. It's like, oh, just try a little, if they'd only tried a little harder or something. Like, come but on. But is that really, so, okay, I'm going to push back a little bit. Because I okay. think, I sort of read it as saying what's sort of tragic about man <laughs> so often is that he can only see clearly when it's, when it's too late. Right. So the whole time you're like trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. Well, I see it, but it's too late. And like, maybe it's a cliche, but like, it seems really true, actually. Like, despite our best efforts, it's like we only see it when it's just like, it doesn't even matter anymore. I mean, you can't, you can't change it. 
And, you know, I mean, yeah, there's this stuff about, you know, pride and arrogance, which I, which I think is sort of clearly, well, uh, to be honest, it could be directed at both of them. They're both super proud and arrogant in their own ways. And maybe that's part of the problem. I mean, maybe that's why they could never converge because in order to converge, you'd kind of have to give a little. I mean, look, obviously Creon in the end was willing to give a little, but it was too late, right? He's already lost his son. He's already lost his niece. I'm not sure. I think it's such a terrible ending. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one thing that is striking about the ending is that like the, you know, the idea here is human beings don't know, right? They don't have wisdom. They don't know how to be good. They have these great words, right? Um, um, and they're arrogant, which is to say they think they know, right? Um, and But then how do they, uh, what happens? Well, they're punished, right? And that's how they learn, right? So this whole play has been a play about learning. And in fact, in Greek, what it says is, that's how they learn name, how to think. Like you could translate it as how to be wise, but um, th- that's like that learning how to think is like having this happen to you such that it's only in retrospect, like that that's like, there's no other way to learn, right? So that would be a way to say like, you know, that's just the human condition is that you're educated by screwing up and there is no way to get that education without the screwing up first, um, that you, you sort of hit the ground running. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Plato's Alcibiades, the first Alcibiades, where he talks to, uh, to, he's talking to Alcibiades, right? Who's like this, like, you know, up and coming, like hot young guy, everyone's after him, right? He's, he wants to rule the world. And Socrates is like, was there ever a time in which you thought you didn't know what justice was? And Alcibiades like, I don't know. Uh, He's like, well, I remember you as a little kid playing dice with the other kids and like screaming that somebody had cheated. So I guess even when you were a little kid, you thought you knew what justice was, right? You were even then, right? And that's kind of, you could see that as what Sophocles is getting at here. It's like, we think, we make these big speeches, like as little kids, we're like, you did something wrong, right? And the way we actually learn is that those big speeches like get us in trouble. And then, so Creon has learned at the end and that that's what learning is, like human learning is, like there's no not having had the tragic flaw. It's just having it and then being schooled. And like, that's how you learn how to think. I guess maybe I'll ask just as a, a kind of closing question, you know, what what are your philosophy students make of this play? I mean, what what is their reaction to it? Or is it just so varied that you can't really? Do they like it? Do, do they, can they get into it? Is it too foreign? I think they love it. They love um, it, why? Yeah. Um, so first of all, keep in mind, right, we're reading it and the other stuff we're reading is not literature. So for them, it's really fun. Like they're taking mm-hmm. a break from doing, uh, reading only philosophical texts. I mean, at that point we had read only Plato. So Plato's pretty fun to read, but this is more fun to read. Uh, what Plato were you reading before you read this? Um, we, so and now I may not remember the precise order, um, but we read, oh, the Euthyphro, of course, we read the Euthyphro because piety. Yeah. we want to talk yeah. about piety. So it's like yeah, two different takes on piety, right? And like, interestingly, right, the Euthyphro is about Euthyphro saying, no, look, punishing my father is the pious thing to do, right? Antigone right. is like burying my brother is the right pious thing to do. Yeah. So um, so I think that they were very interested in questions about pieties and stuff because we were reading it together with the Euthyphro. Um, 
um, they were, I think they were very, you know, uh, but they were very interested, but partly because I was interested. And so I focused the discussions on this question of like, how can we differentiate the kind of arguing that say Antigone and Creon are doing where they have different views about piety and the kind of arguing that Socrates and Euthyphro are doing when they have different views about piety, right? And like Socrates is like, I don't buy the way you talk about the gods, Euthyphro. I think you're wrong, you know? And like, so that's a pretty severe disagreement, actually a more severe one than we see in the Antigone. They don't like disagree about the stories about the gods, right? And yet in some way, Antigone and Creon are much more at odds than Socrates. Well, the stakes are so much higher, right? The stakes are pretty high in the uh, Euthyphro though, because if Euthyphro doesn't, can't explain what piety is, maybe he's about to do a super impious thing. And if Socrates can't understand what piety is, he's about to be put to death, right? So That's Plato true. is doing yeah. his best to, to like, to like construct for us a high stakes philosophical conversation, but it's still a philosophical conversation. Right. And that, I think you're right, automatically kind of does something different. And so they were interested in like, how are these conversations different from the, these disagreements, different from philosophical disagreements? So I haven't, I haven't read the Euthyphro in a, in a long time, but I mean, don't, don't you think it's also partly like, um, so Socrates isn't related to Euthyphro, is he? No. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I sort of feel like part of what is on display in Antigone is just kind of the explosive like family dynamics. Yeah. You know, that in and of itself is, is a, is a different context in which, yeah, people can really, <laughs> really feel like a, a lot is at stake personally. But, but yeah, so your students love it. I mean, that's really great. I've, I somehow haven't managed myself to incorporate tragedy into my, I'm teaching literature and philosophy right now. Mm, um, cool. And yeah, I, I totally loved it. And I actually thought about teaching the Iliad. Maybe I'll make this my last question. How do you teach the Iliad in a philosophy class? Please explain this to me. Um, I've taught it in a lot of different ways. Um, so the biggest challenge with teaching the Iliad is how long it is. It's long. Um, so it's spacing out the books. What you have to do is be really careful about how you assign the reading. You can't assign too much at once. Um, but you have to think about like, what do I, what do I really want to talk about? You know, like, you know, you're going to want to talk about the embassy of the Achilles in book nine. So like, let me make sure that falls not on the same week as like some other thing that I also want to talk about. Um, so um, I think it's really important to devote at least a little bit of time to talking about the graphic descriptions of violence. Um, and like that a lot of the Iliad just is that. So I actually, yeah. at least some of, not every time, but like some of the time I also assign Simone Weil's uh, essay on the Iliad, which is really focuses on that aspect of it, which I think otherwise yeah. gets sort of slighted in how we teach it. Like yeah. this, this idea yeah. of the human being exercising force on another human yeah. being. And what is yeah. horrifying about that? Yeah. Um, I think like there are just certain questions for me that always like are in the background of thinking about the Iliad. Like why are corpses important? Like this whole, the whole thing ends up being about like the value of a corpse, you know? And then like, what is it to have an enemy? And what is like, is there such a thing as the mutual recognition of humanity over this sort of enemy borderline, right? Um, which I think is a big part of what the Iliad, like the Iliad is this story, like, about the Greeks written by a Greek, but kind of the Trojans are like the heroes a little, like Hector is kind of the hero, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it ends with like, and so died Hector. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that Homer could do that. 
in a way, Homer is like almost demonstrating this kind of humanism and cosmopolitanism in how he writes the Iliad. And then, of course, it's also thematized when the meeting between Priam and Achilles, right, where it's like he kissed the hand of the man who had slaughtered his son. And like, that's just so incredibly moving. So I think a lot of the way I teach it is like working up to that moment. And like, why is that so important to Homer? Like, what is he trying to teach us about war and about human beings and sort of the human opposition to one another? So I don't know. Those are some things that I think about in teaching the Iliad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, all of it is great. I guess the thing that I struggle with is how to like, I mean, you do, you can't make a poem into philosophy and it would be a big mistake to try to do it. Is it like setting it up? Like, oh, look at all these interesting questions and now we'll read what some philosophers have to say about it. Oh, no. So like no. when I teach, I mean, I, I mentioned this a moment, but I think but that's an exception to the, like generally I would just be reading the Iliad. I wouldn't read anything else. Um, um, while we're reading, like, uh, sorry, I might, I might simultaneously, I think, I think the last time I read it, we did, we read it alongside the Lakey. So we would like talk about, this is partly how courage. I dealt with, yeah, we would sort of be talking about courage and then be talking about, but like lots of the time is just spent just discussing the Iliad. Right. Um, and I don't think you need to read some other philosophical text alongside it to like, I think it is a philosophical text in a certain way. So I think like, you know, the, the, I mean, the questions are kind of detailed in the text like what are Achilles and Agamemnon fighting over like why is this fight between this fight between people on the same side right is kind of like what drives the whole action of the plot and like why is that such a big deal um like and you know I think that what I try to do is like get students to be really become really invested in the question of honor because mm -hmm. I think that they're at first inclined to be like oh yeah he took away his honors like this fake thing that greeks cared about you know so like he got really angry like whatever yeah. right? and i want to be like no the thing you care about most in the world is honor and that is how you ended up at the university of chicago yeah. and like you know you care about honor in this class like it's why you care about your grades um mm -hmm. and we all really deeply care about how other people represent us and that they esteem us and that to achilles is like death to have that mm -hmm. taken away and so mm -hmm. just what is the love of honor um right. and what is it for there to be this excellent man, Achilles, but then this leader, Agamemnon, and like, how can that, like, is there room, you know, within uh, a group for those two traits to be coming apart? So that's like, the these are some questions that I would start with. Um, and yeah, I guess I do, I think I do try to nudge the students away from, are we on Achilles side or Agamemnon side? Similarly right. to with the Antigone. Right. Um, but I want them to talk about that dispute and what's at stake in it and to try to see like, what it, would it be like to be Agamemnon and to be faced with the kind of insurrection of Achilles? And what would it be like to be Achilles and to have your, your trophies be able to be taken away, right? Um, and then just trying to see like the, the, the psychological dynamic of the characters is so interesting. You know, who is Odysseus? Like, what kind of a guy is he? Um, he's the kind of guy who, um, when he talks, like, he doesn't seem that impressive when he's standing, but when he's sitting and when he talks, his words are like snow and they cover everything and make it beautiful, right? And that is a different guy from Achilles and a different guy from Agamemnon. That's sort of what yeah. I mean by human heterogeneity, right? So there's some yeah. people who can speak in such a way as to beautify everything. And they're also a bit, can be tricky and deceptive. And Achilles is super sensitive to that, hypersensitive to that and really responsive to it. And the whole embassy goes badly. So like what happens when these different, 
like so these are I don't know these are the topics or questions that I discuss and I think they are pretty like deeply enmeshed in the actual text and the actual characters um, um, so they're not just like okay let's come up with a definition of courage and see where it's yeah. substantiated right yeah okay I'm inspired I'm gonna try Agnes thank you so much this was like ridiculous fun I'm really glad it was you great came on. <laughs> yeah no, thank you thank you for inviting me You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by William Dethridge. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or over on the App Lyceum. And you can also follow us on social media where our handle is at Pod. We're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please be sure to let your friends know to check us out and leave us a positive review on iTunes. You can also now support us on Patreon. We are over at patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. I'd like to take a moment to thank our current patrons for their support. Thanks go out to Byron Smith, Bill Cly, Matthew Spence, Deborah Dunk, Matt Davis, Matt Long, Jason Adkins, Sean Feely, Balthazar Simoez, and Stephen Camp. Stay safe, friends, and keep reading. Thank you.